0: we saw an influx of inquiries from practitioners or the coaches and holistic practitioners and therapists outside of psychedelics. And the cool insight was that uh, many of the people in psychedelics, they actually do a lot of other things outside yeah. of psychedelics. And uh, this brought us this bigger insight that actually we live in the ecosystem that is by default multi-model. Most of these practitioners have like two to five modalities they navigate. Moreover, they have this referral dynamic where they collaborate in constellations of care with other practitioners. And it feels like that's the new method that's emerging with its own domain of applicability. And it's in no way competing, I believe. It's not competing with the allopathic medicines. It's truly complementary. And the the true wisdom is to know the domain of each tool. And also the true wisdom is in creating those neural connections between the two hemispheres of this future state of healthcare, And that's what Homecoming is really aiming to create these kind of these connections.
1: Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hagney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the reemergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture. But the future is far from certain. My goal with The Trip Report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests, including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out the thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter, and if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Welcome back to the Trip Report Podcast, a production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today we're speaking with Yuri Bloken, founder and CEO of Homecoming, an all-in-one platform for transformational coaches, therapists, healers, and their clients. Yuri is another entrepreneur in the psychedelic space that I occasionally have long and meandering conversations with about the developing field, where it is headed, and what he's seeing and learning firsthand. These are always insightful and enjoyable conversations. So, we decided to do a podcast. The idea for Homecoming was born out of the need to support people before and after psychedelic ceremonies that catalyzed profound and transformative changes, but were potentially short lived if not suitably prepared for and integrated. In the early days, Yuri volunteered with Heroic Hearts, a nonprofit that supports military veterans seeking psychedelic therapies for PTSD, and he came to recognize that the results were significantly more profound when paired with pre- and post-experience coaching. But facilitating this level of connection, especially when people return to their homes in different parts of the world, was a technological challenge. With the rise in psychedelic retreats, clinics, and all-around general hype and enthusiasm of the last few years, the opportunity to build such a product became a reality. We touched on his early hypothesis that homecoming would be the technological infrastructure layer for psychedelic clinics and retreats only to find that the real customer base was the broad category of practitioners that he calls transformative and integrative providers. This includes coaches, therapists, integration specialists, but also somatic therapists, functional medicine providers, body workers, and a whole network of alternative therapy providers that are increasingly using psychedelics in their practices and have been largely underserved by technology providers to date. Beckley Way is, with its focus on the operational and infrastructure layer of the psychedelic ecosystem jumped at the opportunity to invest in Homecoming Seed Round back in 2021. In this episode, we discuss the variety of structured approaches to psychedelic experiences, epistemic and ontological shock in the healing process, the uses and limitations of the scientific method, the origin story of Homecoming, early stage entrepreneurship and the balance between conviction and radical open-mindedness, and co-creating technology with early customers. And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Yuri Bloken. So Yuri and I have been friends for a few years now, and we occasionally get on the phone or on Zoom and, and talk about the state of things. And I thought it would be a great next step for us to do it in, in podcast land. So Yuri, thanks for joining me on the Trip Report podcast.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Zach. It's uh, truly an honor to be here as a guest and always learn something from our conversations. And I hope to do the same in the next few hours.
1: Yeah. So I'm interested in learning about sharing more with our listeners about your background, your story, your career, and your baby homecoming, right? Homecoming health, which which we'll talk about. And then sort of more broadly, the topic of the psychedelic ecosystem and the future they're in to kind of round us out. So, with that sort of quick context, can who are you? <laughs> Where do you come from? What's your what's your what's your story? Sure. My story is that uh, I grew up in Ukraine and um, was
0: born and raised there was always a really inquisitive kid with an early interest in the fungi and the cacti, and eventually that got replaced by math and physics and computer science. And that was a great foreshadowing for the rest of my story. At the age of 16, I moved to Canada with my family who were trying to escape the kind of the, uh, the general chaos and corruption of like the Ukraine of the '90s. And so I ended up in Vancouver and then went to study mathematical physics at the University of Waterloo, which is like our Canadian school for where people who are into math and physics try to congregate. And so while there, a few relevant things happened. On the one hand, I met a bunch of people who not only were good at math and physics and computer science, but also were really into this newly emergent, kind of relatively newly emergent idea of like, why don't we just get together and build a startup? It was pre Current era of like institutionalized and really mainstreamized startup culture. So at that point, to me, it felt like like a way out, not to get into kind of the more traditional pathways, from like finance and banking and all the corporate jobs.
1: When when was this? What what years?
0: I went to school in the uh, mid two thousands, so two thousand four to two thousand eight, mm-hmm. and when I graduated, the financial crisis happened. So like it made the decision even more natural to explore entrepreneurship. But also something that has happened during the college days was also that I first encountered psychedelics. And as an immigrant in in Canada, even though I socially adjusted pretty quickly in terms of like going to good school like getting my first jobs and having a few friends. But generally, I I haven't. It wasn't the smoothest landing for me as an immigrant. And uh, I had a pretty severe depression. And so in college. What I first discovered was like, wow, psychedelics really helped me with that depression. And of course, the use of psychedelics back then was like really, really unstructured, chaotic, super suboptimal in many, many ways, and not a part of any traditional lineage. But it gave me a flavor of like what's possible. And so later on, as I finished school and ended up in tech startups land, my journey continued in the sense Like I became the first employee, the first engineer at Canada's first consumer tech unicorn called Kick Messenger. It was a wild ride. Like We grew at its peak to 300 million registered users. It was a really, really popular chat application. And uh, at some point, we've been sort of going head to head with WhatsApp. And then BlackBerry sued us with a bogus claims and disabled our access to BlackBerry infrastructure. And so pretty much Due to unfair competitive advantage, we've lost that race with WhatsApp. But it was, it was a great learning curve. And uh, during that time, I also just kept coming back to the experience of the psychedelics because my depression was not getting any better at some point and vulnerably, like it felt like there is no option. It felt like there is no way out of this depression. And I sat down with myself and felt like, okay, if the only thing that ever has helped me was this, these experiences what is the right way to do that? Like, is there a right way? Because I was still like in this like Western bubble without the right way of any kind around psychedelics. I got really curious because my life literally depended on it. Mm -hmm. And so discovered some Stan Groff's textbooks and LSD psychotherapy. It's like, okay, there's something semi-structured, but like nobody was practicing LSD psychotherapy around me. And so I kept getting curious more about it. And mind you, I was a really canonic, classical, like mathematical physics student, staunchly atheist, staunchly anti-all things spiritual, had an, a physical allergic reaction from going to church at that time. That's a, that's a hyperbole, but like that was like not too far from reality. And so a friend of a friend ended up doing an apprenticeship in Amazonian shamanism, Amazonian plant medicine shamanism in ayahuasca at that time, 11 years ago, which was really, really obscure and rare thing back then. And so to me, it felt like, well, it seems like there is a structured approach there. And that's what I was looking for, is a structured approach to psychedelic experiences. And I wanted to go as deep and as far as I could with this structured approach. And I didn't see any other options. So I bought my tickets to Peru. And I went there with like, really sort of open mind around like whatever happens, happens. I, don't, I didn't feel like there's any other option. And what happened was, A, I healed my decade-long depression. And B, I have experienced a profound ontological and epistemological shock to my system, and I'm still getting out of that shock probably to date. That's why I'm here on this conversation with you. Probably it's that shock, because <laughs> <laughs> it felt like in the entirety of how I like looked at the world was like expanded, complemented, and pretty disrupted, but in a way that was even more resilient and uh, extensive and curious.
1: Do you think that that epistemic and ontological shock, how much do you think that was part of the healing process? Or if we could put it into like scientific, the mechanism of action, did it include that? that? Was that a side product? Or
0: I can only speak for myself in my own experience. And in my particular case, it was really 100% overlap. That it was really the healing mechanism because and i I can go into details about exactly that part of the vision that i would ascribe to this shock so i I had my cup of ayahuasca and approached this in a very cowboy manner feeling like i've done lsd and psilocybin like what else could happen like i know what i'm getting into and so 20 minutes into this what i find myself is facing the tree of life like, and I didn't know such terms. I was not into mythology or comparative uh, anthropology. I was really a mathematician-minded person, so it's just, but you know, in your like, deepest recesses of your soul, it's like, this is the tree of life, the essence of all being. And I'm confronted with it, with the vision of this purple, deep purple tree. And this is the quintessential of all life in, in this being. And my body spontaneously just collapsed on my knees and I started to cry. And it was just flowing out of me because I was seeing like, hey, there is so much more to life. There is like this like vitality to all of life. This is not a reductionist mechanistic universe we inhabit. And so I'm crying, apologizing again, all not intellectually, but like on a much deeper level, happening out of, flowing out of me. And I'm apologizing that I'm sorry, the the mother, the tree of life, like that. Like I I thought that I can live without being a part of you without, without a relationship with you i'm sorry for being so naive and arrogant and i was just crying and there's like what i could receive back what i felt like i was receiving back was like there's nothing to be sorry for my son i always loved love and will love you no matter what you do so no nothing to be sorry about and so that, of course created even more of a catharsis that's the idea that there's an interaction with a tree of life that embodies all life and so I cried more. And then at some point that like one of the branches of the tree like extended visually into my spine. And physically on a physical level it happened that like basically the message was like, Now I'm gonna prepare you for the work. And like my body entered this kind of really intense convulsions and I felt like I was being pumped with energy.
1: Like oh, wow. for lack like, of a
0: better word. And I was like convulsing and felt like more and more alive and like my depression was like no longer like that felt anymore. At some point, the branch kind of disconnected, and it's like, okay, now you're ready to do the work. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my first 20 minutes of my first ayahuasca experience. So yes, I do think that it's at the root of the healing mechanism for me was this epistemic and ontological shock.
1: So it sounds like you went from, correct me if I'm wrong, like a rationalist, reductive Math and science, and sort of very again, correct me if I'm wrong, but materialistic worldview to something different because of this experience.
0: Yeah, I'd say my before principle, before it was drilled into us back in Ukraine and our like math and physics school, was like, you can't use anything until you can prove it. Like, you had to go back to first principles and be able to prove any result, in like, whatever you do. So that was like really my operating principle in life, like I have to be able to prove. And what happened after was really this realization, not that that's wrong, like definitely not like that there's something wrong about it. It's just the understanding of the scope of practice for the scientific mm. method. It's the realization that like, oh, wow, it's a really uneducated way to use the scientific method unless you understand its boundaries. Yeah. And I felt like for the first time I realized, oh wow, there are boundaries. Wow. And so I'm actually better at using the scientific method and rational thoughts by oh, yeah. knowing the domain of this tool. And what I learned is well there's oh wow, there are other tools with their own domains. And I have just experienced like that uh, expression of those tools in action in their own domain and scientific method has nothing to do with that domain and a wise person knows when to use which tool within what domain. And I felt like the point of very elegant convergence and complementarity and expansion of my life rather than oh now i believe in a new thing and the old thing is no longer correct
1: that's beautiful that's well put that's really well put we could go on and on and on in that domain but you've had your first ayahuasca experience now and what comes next
0: i i'd say the natural outcome of uh, such shock for me was curiosity I I would say, especially the first year, like when I wasn't working, like my startup, I was just like generally kind of like really curious about like what the hell just happened and (laughs) how can I reconcile that expansion of my reality with like what I was taught and what the culture was showing up as true fundamentally. And again, I was like really, really cautious about my methods, and I was really trying to kind of just like reconcile it and integrate versus just like. Jump into a new way of seeing things. I always believe in this kind of like include and transcend versus kind of move from one to another. Mm. And, and, and so that curiosity led me to seek what other sort, how can I make sense of it? And like surprisingly for myself, I kind of ended up just for the first time in my life seeing that some spiritual texts actually have a lot of value and meaning. Like I, I would laugh at that idea even a year before that. And all of a sudden I was reading this like. Books, and, and I was just wow, there is like there, there is a way to look at these books in a less literal and more deep way that opens up all those experiences. And the, 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 there's like so much wisdom codified there. And like generally, the whole theme of discerning and knowledge from wisdom was a big one yeah. in those early days. And realizing there are wisdom traditions, and it felt like almost like living without those wisdom without tapping into those wisdom traditions felt like going across the desert and dying from thirst and having a full backpack of water.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What were, are you at liberty to say kind of some of those traditions or books or authors that were important or have been important to you in this process? Yeah, absolutely. It was
0: like nothing that crazy. Like what helped me a lot originally was a book by Trung-Yang Chung called The Sacred Path of the Warrior. He's one of the more mainstream, mm-hmm. popular kind of Buddhist writers. The Secret Path of the Warrior was really useful in that sense that the work offered a working model for how to integrate. I also found writings of Al-Ghazali, an Islamic scholar and mystic, very useful because he had a wonderful essay about his own journey as a scholar, as a scientist who was trying to reconcile mysticism and wisdom traditions and oscillating back and forth and it has a chapter of his life as a scholar, as a politician, then as a mystic, and then like integrated conclusion of that whole. Yeah. And it felt very resonant because, like, the theme of my life is integration. I always like seek to connect the disparate parts, the opposing yeah. extremes. That's just what my, feels like my calling in life, yeah. in, in a way. And it also opened me up to curiosity to keep coming back to South America to kind of less for healing, more for just learning directly, experientially from. The same means of how it, what the locals would learn directly from the plants. That's the model there, where you don't have a teacher explaining theoretical concepts to you. You have a structured tradition of the experiences where you can learn from from the like what would be considered the plant world directly through these ayahuasca experiences. But also a, another tool that I found incredibly powerful in, in the indigenous. Worldview is actually the primary tool of learning about how to work with plants and healing called plant dietas. And it's, it's less discussed in the West because it's not psychoactive. Mm-hmm. But when you talk to a local practitioner in Peru or like South America, they would say this is how they trained. And ayahuasca is almost a secondary or like, at least like complementary tool to plant dietas. But plant dietas is really where the rubber meets the road.
1: So for for people who may not be familiar with with dietas, tell us a little bit about what, what that entails.
0: It certainly involves yet another shock, like oh, ontological and epistemic, to even like accept it. But and for me it took me three or four dietas, frankly, to fully embrace the worldview of the way it was literally kind of suggested, like proposed by indigenous practitioners. And I approached this with a lot of skepticism. So plant dieta uh embraces the notion that in the indigenous cosmology, every plant has a spirit. Just like every human has a spirit, just like every mountain has a spirit. So every plant has a spirit. And some plants are unique in that way that like they just, their spirits embody a bit more wisdom and healing capacities. In the material world, this would mean these would be the medicinal plants. But the the indigenous practitioners go even beyond that and they embrace the idea that it's just one part of the equation. But the physical medicinal properties are complemented by a plant spirit that can teach you and impart some wisdom around some particular aspects of being and life. And that wisdom will help you muster that skill that will prevent you from that illness or ailment to, from resurfacing again and to heal this specific ailment initially. Or if, or ailment could be a behavioral pattern, too. Yeah. So there are different teacher plants. That you can do a plant dieta with to focus on specific aspects of your life. And some teacher plans could focus on resilience, for example, and fortitude. And some could focus on calming down an overheated psyche, for example, a warrior who came back from the war and needs to kind of reintegrate his psyche or her psyche and calm down. And there's like a whole universe of those plants. And the, like good practitioners know at least 100 plants they work with in the plant dieta format. And the way you do this dieta is you retreat into isolation. You calm down your surroundings so that like the chatter, mental chatter and the external stimuli go down. And in that isolation, you, in that cosmology, what you do is you create a sacred communion with that plant spirit. And the way you do that is you drink a a distillation of that plant every day for a number of days. And also you follow a very strict diet of all kinds of restrictions, both food restrictions, but also mental distraction restrictions, like no sexual stimulation, The list may be quite extensive, but the idea is to really simplify all kinds of external stimuli so you can focus on the one thing, creating a hospitable, quiet space within your psyche for this plant to settle in and teach you whatever it needs to teach. And of course, the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, well, this is like I can't understand why a molecule in ayahuasca could work. I I couldn't really find any way how this could work. And so I I almost did this out of politeness for the first time. (laughs) And it worked.
1: How do you know it worked? Like, What what was the experience that leads to this conviction or understanding?
0: Yeah. So there are multiple layers of how diets can manifest in your life. There is the most obvious for observation externally is the behavioral changes and how much conscious effort is applied towards them versus uh, how much they're kind of flowing out of you. And so that's that is what was happening in my case, where without like a kind of deliberate effort or kind of intentional structuring of my life around creation of new habits, the behavioral patterns that like were at the core of some of my mental health issues, they started to shift and augment. And aside from that, it was also just this idea that like, again, it's all, it all may sound very alien in a traditional model, but basically these diets can start to communicate with you in the form of insights and dreams hmm. and a very strong intuitions which are pre-rational they're not non-rational they're pre-rational they come from a deeper level and you almost learn the whole way of working with them where this develops from within you and then it's like it's the time to use this other tool the rational mind to kind of double check and sanity check it and it's important in this dieting that like you learn to first seek out for this intuition but then you double check it and typically that kind of offers a very strong decision and so i just started to see that specifically what the plant i dieted for the first time was allegedly designed for as a plant dieta and which i did with like a tremendous skepticism and irony it started to shift my whole kind of psyche and behavior around that specific pattern i was like okay that's interesting so what other plants are there, and like would, would it work and uh, And I would intentionally not go into too many details researching yeah. how they manifest. I would just kind of like, ask the practitioners like what other the you suggest for me and yeah. where I am and I would just did this experiment a number of times to the point where it's like just kept working better and better over time and fully aligned with like the experience of hundreds of practitioners who went through this lineage yeah. So at this point I I'm firmly in the camp that plan dietas is sort of gonna be the next big thing when everybody gets calling about psychedelics.
1: <laughs> well, I, I that strikes me as a, a, a natural segue into homecoming and the the intention and the product and the service that you're creating there. So just in the sense that like what you're describing with a dieta, which I've never done one. It sounds like it's, a, it's another form of guidance, you might say, and you've gotten the, sort of the initial protocol or the, the instructions from a guide, from a shaman, from a practitioner. And that is a part of just healthcare writ large, right? Whether we're talking about is a, is a physician, a doctor, a therapist, patient relationship. And so tell us a little bit about Homecoming and where the idea came from, perhaps. Thanks, Zach. So
0: yeah, like the idea for Homecoming has emerged very organically, and it was a combination of my own kind of attempt to systematize my integration of these shocking, beautifully shocking experiences when I would come back to a small town called Waterloo, Ontario, and try to kind of keep on living my life. But also, I felt like a, like a very natural extension of my integration process. I felt the calling to be of service to the broader community, and back then, it was not really an option to have a full time job around psychedelics unless you were a part of nonprofits. Even like a part time job, like nonprofits was the only outlet to get out of your psychedelic closet. And I really desperately wanted to get out of my psychedelic closet in a meaningful way. And so there was only a handful of big ones like see ICers, and Maps, and they already they already were pretty well staffed. And so I was looking to start or join a new nonprofit. And in that sense, I got lucky and privileged when I met an army ranger named Jesse Gould, who was just a few days after deciding to start a nonprofit called the Heroic Hearts Project. We met in Medellin, Colombia, very randomly, in a bar of all places, no way. I was wearing a... I was wearing an ICS t-shirt saying Ayahuasca Community Protector, which is like a gift they gave to all the people who donated to the Ayahuasca Legal Defense Fund. And so this was like a call to action for Jesse, who is this guy I need to talk to him. And after a few beers and a few meetings down the line, we kind of decided, okay, there's like a lot of synergy. I'm not a veteran, but I felt really called and drawn towards the veteran cause through my own family history, where we have a lot of veterans and just, through just I felt the calling even on a deep like personal level for ayahuasca work. And so we've been co-creating, like Jesse is a leader, and I was helping out like create like heroic hearts for five, six years, and the whole idea and the vision for an opportunity to help out uh, with something like homecoming just kept surfacing, because not only we needed to offer access to psychedelic medicines, and in our case, it was typically yeah. ayahuasca. But also what was obvious that like the results are so much more profound when it's all paired up with the sort of integration and preparation coaching services before and after, because the experience alone can, as you obviously well know, can fizzle out after a few months. And how do you leverage those that, uh, those insights, energy, and momentum after a profound ceremony? And that those to me were like, the, that was the working model in my mind. Like you get, uh, these experiences give you all this like, package of goodies and you have a short window of opportunity to do something with it. How do you maximize that window of opportunity as utility? And uh, coaching was an obvious kind of practice people tend to, to, to do in this, but coaches were limited. And also they're typically like not always super logistics oriented. They love coaching people. They don't love like, staying on top of all the different things and activities they need to do. And so, for me, as a technologist, it was felt like a natural opportunity to kind of see is there a way to streamline the process of psychedelic integration and preparation and build a tool just for this community of psychedelic practitioners and coaches yeah. and therapists and It was an inconceivable idea before, but in twenty twenty one there was like for the first time ever an interest in funding of psychedelic companies, so it felt to me like, okay, I need to see this unique window of opportunity and somebody with a technology background and a non-profits background felt like I was a good fit for this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even the first time I was starting to build something in mental health care technology, because even back at Kick, I was lucky to be a part of a pretty unique project where for the first time on the internet, we have created a large scale safety net for mental health, working across many social media networks like Tumblr, Pinterest, Kik. Uh, where we could detect in real time a mental health crisis happening, reach out to that person and support them right there, right then, in a peer to peer fashion while using AI to media to filter out bad actors and harassment and um, unhelpful activities, yeah. but effectively creating a fully highly scalable peer to peer support network where we, with the efficacy that was recorded by Harvard in a study. So it felt to me like Okay, it's possible to use tech for mental health, and homecoming felt like what's needed by this psychedelic community. And this led me to launch the company.
1: Yeah, this is back in 2021, right? Yeah. You said. Yeah. So, as we've kind of talked periodically throughout the last couple of years, there's been a few—I don't know if you'd call them pivots or iterations or different working hypotheses—that you've had for homecoming and and sort of a difference in go-to-market strategy or the first port of call for the providers. Can you talk a little bit about that process from like a practical perspective, but also like, I I think what, what's been interesting to me, and I've had this sort of feeling myself, like you have an idea and at least this is my experience. I have an idea and (laughs) I become married and wedded to that. Like, Oh my God, this is fucking brilliant. Like I gotta. And after a handful of conversations or testing it out, information emerges that kind of challenges the the preciousness of that original idea. And I I end up like thinking, oh, this is a little bit. This is actually a different sort of problem than I had envisioned. This is actually something that we are kind of on the other end of at Beckley Waves. Like we incubate companies and we have. Had a, a project ongoing for the last few months, and it's it's kind of meandered through different iterations of it. So I'll stop talking now. But I'm I'm curious, like if you could speak to your experience with both, like specifically what what that challenge or process has been like, but also maybe the emotional or the serendipity or the how how it kind of emerges.
0: Yeah, you really point at the very spirit of this kind of early stage entrepreneurship or innovation. And uh, on one hand, you do need to be really married to that idea to like keep tapping that like energy and drive and resilience. And if you don't have that drive, like you're like you're doomed at the beginning. At the same time, you need to maintain this radical open-mindedness to kind of to challenges to your idea, or you become diluted. And it's certainly a muscle that you need to practice. That's the way I conceptualize it. And Some of the best exercises to practice that muscle is talking to customers as frequently as you can Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, ideally structuring those conversations not uh, as a sales call, but really more of a kind of just listener, a a deep empathetic listener that's not leading the conversation at all in any way. That's hard because as a founder, you want to jump into your sales mode or like at least some kind of storytelling mode of what it could be. and get like get a new supporter get a new ally on the journey and it's almost antithetical to like what you really want is to just like somebody to do a download of their unfiltered unstructured thoughts and also you need to be discerning around like what they say they want versus maybe reading between the lines around what they would actually do in the real world situation because sometimes there is a behavior of people potentially saying what you would want to hear just because they like you or there's like some friendly introduction that made it and and it's a big skill to not even create enough context for people to know what would be the right quote unquote answer and just sort of like almost like have the most neutral open-ended questions where there is no way for them to even guess what's the right answer and also the muscle is about just personal hunger for this sort of feedback because it's very very tempting to stay in, in your beautiful universe with this idea and keep building, keep creating, keep getting allies who believe in this idea too, but then maybe postponing the moment of reality checking and the more, more, more frequently you can introduce your reality checks into the system, ideally through pre-scheduled, systematic, frequent calls with customers, the better. Yeah. And in yeah. our case with Homecoming, I can share the, the story arc there and it's certainly a skill that been all evolving where we launched. The first version of Homecoming and back, we waves joined the first round of investment with us it was in 2021. And the thesis was that Homecoming is a client companion tool for clinics and retreats, working with psychedelic therapies in a legal context. And the cool thing is like, it was actually needed. It was demand for it, like, yeah. uh, like we qu- relatively quickly onboarded like about a dozen of paying customers, clinics and retreats alike, and it gave us but here's like the big, painful lesson number one. <laughs> it gave us a false sense of confidence around having product market fit. That was a big lesson learned eventually where we were not looking maybe as closely at like the true indication of product market fit around engagement with the product and measured it more like, do people sign contracts? And what we eventually learned in the psychedelic ecosystem when you build a startup within psychedelics, it's a bubble within a bubble. <laughs> and many psychedelic clinics and retreats thought that they want a client companion app of some kind for their yeah. clients. It didn't mean that they actually used it. Yeah. And this was something that took us a while to untangle. And that insight was also married with this broader insight that psychedelic industry is just relatively small. Yeah. And the number of clinics and retreats within it is even smaller. And the yeah. number of them who would be willing to pay for a client companion, yeah, unless it handled all of their workflows, like for their practice, even smaller. And so we got all the best in class practitioners and clinics and retreats. Where there was that was the perk of building something so edgy and niche that like the best ones really valued that. But it was not a sustainable business. The market was just too small for us. And the product scope was like too small. We needed to be more of a core place where you come to every day to do your work then there was like real legs to this hypothesis where client companionship was just one of the differentiated value offerings yeah and uh, that was the big moment where we decided okay like let's go speak to many customers and co-create with them something that's a broader in scope in terms of the product offering and like more around all in one tool for you to run your practice where client companionship is one of the features and b is there a bigger market? And we uh, already had an answer for that because we saw an influx of inquiries from practitioners or the like coaches and holistic practitioners and therapists outside of psychedelics. And the cool insight was that uh, many of the people in psychedelics, they actually do a lot of other things outside yeah. of psychedelics. And uh, this brought us this bigger insight that actually we live in the ecosystem that is by default multi-model. Most of these practitioners have yeah. like two to five modalities. They navigate. Moreover, they have this referral dynamic where they collaborate in constellations of care with other practitioners. So A life coach can send you to a fitness coach, to an IFS therapist, and to a psychedelic guide on a given month. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) What I think is so fascinating about this is like, this is an ecosystem that is really it's kind of outside of the conventional healthcare model. And for the most part, it's not touching insurance. It's not touching FDA approvals because most practitioners that we're talking about, we're talking about coaches, we're talking about therapists, the different varieties of therapists, maybe naturopaths, maybe acupuncturists, maybe energy healers. This is a frontier of novelty that I think is like very... I've lived in New York City. I'm an acupuncturist by training. Like it's not unfamiliar to me, but I, am, I, I can only imagine that it's like a bit of a what for a lot of people, this kind of like, I, I don't want to call it an underground because it's not right. These are providers that are sort of operating above board. They have licenses, they have websites, they have credentialing, and it's, it's a different paradigm you might say than allopathic conventional yeah. healthcare.
0: Absolutely. And we can draw a parallel there almost to the earlier discussion we had between the methods and domains. And it feels like that's the new method that's emerging with its own domain of applicability. And it's in no way competing, I believe. It's not competing with the allopathic medicines. It's truly complementary. And the the true wisdom is to know the domain of each tool. And also the true wisdom is in creating those neural connections between the two hemispheres of this. Future state of healthcare, and that's what Homecoming is really aiming to create these kind of these connections.
1: So, sorry, I, I cut you off from your your journey from targeting ketamine clinics and retreat operators to this more what sounds like individuals and individual practitioners and in an opaque kind of landscape of healing modalities. And so, I'm curious about that pivot or that transition. Was it? one conversation? Was it after ten conversations? Was it an aha moment? Was it yeah. how did that how did that happen?
0: Uh happened slowly and then all at once.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: but when we decided to go to back the drawing board, we already had an intuition around coaching being that market focus. Yeah. It had the volume, it had the scope, it had the already existing natural interest and in oncoming through these inbound inquiries and referrals. It felt like the most natural place to start. And so we have created a group uh, of practitioners uh, for a co-creation exercise where each week we would engage with them in these kind of working workshops. Then we would try to really, really deeply understand how they practice, what's overlapping, what's what's divergent across different modalities of coaching. And then try to land on, a, on an MVP just mm-hmm. for solo coaches, solo practitioner coaches. And, for us through this like three month process, well, we landed on what the MVP scope that felt like the most overlapping approach. It was like this idea of a follow up. It seems like a very innocent idea with a very generic name, but the, the core insight is that across the entirety of this new weird, just about to be above ground, but still kind of underground community of holistic practitioners. There's a primacy of this idea that they're not there to fix their client, which is frequently more of the old school, kind of more allopathic approach. It's the client who does the healing themselves. And like the role of a practitioner is to create enough insight, guidance, so that they can activate those uh, resources within the client. And uh, what this implies as a consequence is that the real work, real healing really just begins after the session ends. Mm-hmm. And typically, this transition happens when a practitioner creates a follow-up container like a collection of core insights instructions resources activities whatever that could be it's a very eclectic package typically where practitioners curate all kinds of things for like a bag of goodies for their client to take home with them and work on on their own time to really take that transformation journey in their own hands until the next session and so for the provider there's a way to kind of Monitor their client's progress, but the, for the client, that's the guidance, the structure, the clarity on what to do next. And that was the scope of this initial MVP for coaches. And it was really spot on. Like that like ended up really being how most of these new school practitioners do things. And whenever we meet a practitioner who's like maybe not really doing follow-up, some of the coaches don't do that, but a very, very small margin of that. But typically it's more of a traditional psychotherapist who is really well entrenched in the insurance covered market and doesn't have issues with clientele and there's a clear divide that like it's like the moment you start like hustling for leads on your own and trying to embed all these modalities and different practitioners like that becomes almost like a lingua franca of how you practice
1: interesting so you said a a i think i think the phrase you used was like a a place where you do your work right? That homecoming is a platform where therapists can maybe not do their client work, but it's a hub. It's a home base for scheduling, for content delivery, for follow-ups. Can you talk a little bit about sort of like what people are doing when they log in? And let's say we have a, a coach that's listening to us now or a therapist, like what's, give us the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> sure, and uh, but with yeah, features, with features, yeah, yeah. So, like,
0: uh, I, homecoming is really the like the like the only tool you would need as a solo practitioner, coach to run your practice and support your clients. So, on the baseline, it, it it does mean very kind of grounded logistical things like scheduling and payments. We decided to not reinvent the wheel around those and instead integrate uh Calendly and Stripe right into the workflow. That's what most people already use. They're powerful. It's also a place where you can curate and consolidate all the resources you share with clients and not only your own, but we have curated an ecosystem of top-notch practitioners across all the modalities, across the medical to mystical (laughs) spectrum, where you can discover their resources and collections of resources and add them to your library so you can learn and share with clients too.
1: So this is like articles to be read or sort of theoretical concepts, their scales or measures, like tell me a little bit more about the resources.
0: Yeah, so the approach we're taking on there is that we we have started with the resources that can be either shared with your clients. So like it could be exercises, it could be techniques, could be scales, could be guided meditations. And we're now also expanding this with content hubs from some of these practitioners or educators, training programs where they actually want to cultivate a place where practitioners across the ecosystem can come in and learn more on how to kind of get better at their craft. And so this is now going to cover general content for how to be a better practitioner in community too. Interesting. Yeah. And that's a major part of how we are different, for example, from like a few other coaching all-in-one platforms. Cause it's not a new idea that the coach may need an all-in-one to to run their practice. There's Practice, there's Coaching.com, there's a few other companies, and they approach this horizontal, what I call a horizontal strategy. It's like, they don't care if you're a life coach, a tax coach, a a relationship coach, or an accounting coach. Like, they just do this one thing for all. We really care about one specific community. We're a vertical uh, platform for Mm -hmm. holistic practitioners, holistic coaches, therapists, and practitioners. So 50 plus modalities under this umbrella. And where we differentiate is that, yes, we do offer that kind of baseline, logistical baseline, but we build on top of that with things that can be only useful and especially useful for these types of people. So it's a content, curated content ecosystem that lets you stay on top of your game. Uh, It's a curated community of practitioners where not only you can have masterminds and events around like specific elements of your craft, but also it's a way to discover who you can refer people for a cross referral. Or maybe in the opposite, build a reputation with your peers to for others to start referring people to you. So that's another way how we intend to foster this unique ecosystem within this hemisphere of yeah.
1: healthcare. So people who are on the platform now engaging at this sort of level of of, of engagement with the tool, what's the variety of, of practitioners like? What's the, the yeah. spectrum?
0: Sure. Yeah. So our... Uh, Alma mater is psychedelics. So we started with the psychedelic uh, coaches and therapists. That's our first kind of third of the the customers. And then it started to branch out into adjacent territories of IFS therapists, for example, Mm -hmm. men's work coaches, sex and relationship coaches of all kinds, from the more mystical and tantric ones to probably the more kind of conservative and traditional ones. Mm -hmm. There are life coaches of all kinds because life coaches almost by now it's almost barely usable generic yeah, term.
1: Yeah,
0: like <laughs> yeah. we have a lot more nuance there. But that's where I would say relationship coach, uh leadership coaching is a huge theme. Yeah, specifically in our case, not all leadership coach would be probably optimal, but there's a whole new school of leadership and executive coaching that's deeply rooted in mindfulness and very frequently also rooted in uh, somatic therapies, yeah. uh, somatic modalities, and psychedelic modalities. Yeah. It's almost like it be- it becomes more and more standard. Maybe it's my bias from where I sit, but it's yeah. almost like hard for me to meet an executive coach these days who doesn't use psychedelics, body, and mindfulness.
1: That's fascinating.
0: Yeah. And so now, for us, the big moment is sort of a we do we are raising a bit more funding to extend our runway, and B we'll use this funding to start scaling this early kind of beachhead of a yeah. market position, and through this kind of iterative process of working in the desert and trying different things. We tried many, many channels and go-to-market motions, and we landed on a few that seemed to work well for us. Given just how much of a vertical and trust-based ecosystem this is, the idea is to lean into this trust that practitioners may have with the homecoming brand and our ethos and some of the work we've done with nonprofits and with the, the reciprocity grants. And we're building partnerships with training programs and mm-hmm. the professional associations that are yeah. interested to support their alumni as they graduate and develop their skills after.
1: So it sounds like if people get into the platform and start using it, they stick with it. They stick with it like,
0: in, in a way that is definitely a strong enough basis. For, of course, they can, there, there is a way to improve, but I already feel like it's already sticky enough for us to start scaling.
1: Nice. I mean, what's the market size of this sort of transformational practitioner? I have no idea. Actually, now that I think about it. How many coaches, practitioners, people who do this type of work are are in the world? And it seems like it's a growing, like it's a trend, right? To connect with people and try to help them out in some way, whether you call yourself a coach or not.
0: Yeah, it's definitely the number is a moving target because there's so many ways to calculate it and it's growing each year as well, like you mentioned, because of the cultural, economic and technological shifts. The way I look at this is we look at the the portion of the psychotherapist market that is more new school, that's a bit more open to holistic modalities and practices in that way that's compatible with homecoming. It's also the whole coaching community and it's really rapidly growing. And also, it's the 50-plus holistic practitioner modalities that include the motley crew of energy practitioners, acupuncturists, and uh, somatic and body workers, and IFS therapists. There would be more of a classic therapy modality that's really compatible with us. And so together, on the low end, we estimate half a million practitioners of that kind, mm-hmm. with most of them being in the U.S., and then kind of say like a fifth, fifth in Europe and Canada, Australia, and LATAMP central american latin that tends to kind of reside in a good number of people like that too yeah and so that's kind of what we operate is a lower kind of boundary of the of the 10 there and it's certainly a very rapidly growing number like when you look at the training programs for example ifs training is impossible to book for like 12 to 18 months ahead it depends on how well connected. like i'm not sure if you can even skip in the in terms of like yeah. Be well connected, but it's like, you can't book for 2023 at this point. Yeah, And it's not a cheap training. When you look at how much people are paying and their booking rates at the psychedelic integration coaching programs and psychedelic guides programs, there's no shortage of new people coming yeah. into this ecosystem. Yeah. And where we see our role is like, how do we help these people to kind of transition from this new entrant and and to a thriving practitioner who is doing their life's best work helping clients growing evolving in community and makes a living sustainable living yeah out of this
1: there's a few things that i think are are interesting here so like we're kind of all waiting for maps to hopefully get fda approval with their mdma assisted therapy sometime next year and my my sense is like if you look at the protocol of the maps phase two and three trials right there was, yeah. I think, over 40 hours of face-to-face like therapy. therapy with a patient provider. Two of those, during the sessions, there was two providers. And knowing how the American healthcare system works, that's going to get chewed up and spit out to be basically like as low cost a procedure as it possibly can. Maybe I'm a little too cynical to be kind of talking about that. But I guess what that leads me to think is like, the work of preparation and especially integration and sort of working through the experiences and the ontological and epistemic kind of shocks that that comes from these is going to be left to the providers in in the real world. You might say, like, and again, I, I may be too cynical, but I just see so much of mental health writ large. You might say moving into more of a alternative peer to peer bottom up community oriented thing that just doesn't fit into modern healthcare system right like that that's just my that's just how i see the the stars aligning or the 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 path emerging so i'm curious and I, and i would imagine that people will gravitate to providers or coaches, or therapists, or people who they resonate with, and they may not have terminal degrees, MDs, psychiatry, and so I, I guess I'm just kind of like speculating, but also seeing: Does this projection that I'm sort of painting does that does that resonate? Does that make sense? Is that how you see things, or how would you challenge that?
0: I think we see the world in a very similar way. I was almost surprised just to see how much alignment there is because it's not. The most mainstream convergence point but it brings me back to denver and horizons there was a dinner discussion we've had and there have been some of the people from the va system and from some of the other kind of like high profile healthcare leadership roles in the country and that was their primary concern like i don't want to share names but like probably will would know the names and that was like number one concern they like well the system is not ready these physicians these psychiatrists are already so overworked they don't have the skills and time to like handle these ontological shocks like that like, people think people who think otherwise are naive that was kind of their core concern and they felt like we're all living in this kind of ponyland, ro- rosy bubble of a psychedelic universe and My response to that was, uh, I think you're right, but it's actually, there's an optimistic way out there where we need to look at all the ways of accessing psychedelics. And there's the the medical pathway, but there's also the religious pathway. There is the community pathway, and there's the decrim pathway. And people only think about the medical one, but what's happening quietly with the medical trailblazers creating the cultural set and setting for the other models to really, really come to fruition right now. My bet is medical model will be less than 10% of yeah. the real world use. Yeah. And uh, what's already emerging is the religious use model. I'm a huge fan of that, but it's, I understand it's not everybody's cup of tea. And uh, there's Santa Dining UDV. And it's, it, it, it's a vibe. It's its own universe. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's wonderful universe. But what will be the offshoot of that, I think, is there's like two parallel tracks of deep and community. And right now, community model is probably the least developed. But I think it's the kind of, it's the child of the religious use model and yeah. the Decrim model where it's the middle way, it's the middle path, where some other kind of, maybe let's call them not religious, but spiritual groups or like at least kind of mindfulness oriented groups who kind of gather together on shared basic values that may be fairly uh, non-contro- like non-controversial like yeah. non and uh, something very basic around the privacy of consciousness, around the uh, as the root of healing around the universe as the source of healing and interconnectedness something very like non-controversial could yeah. be the root of those groups where peers uh community peers community leaders could emerge without degrees but really through some kind of lineage kind of non, not unlike how it has developed in the indigenous world yeah i think we'll just we cannot clone the indigenous model it's like of course very different setting setting and we're, and it's just not even gonna work and it's also just like not what we have permission to do yeah and so I think this will be our own way to develop our own lineages over time through these communal models where you can come into your community circle on the Friday night, have a ceremony, have an experience, and then you have a tribe of your locals, your neighbors with whom you integrate these yeah. in a group setting and where tools like Homecoming play a role to uh, ensure some of the best practices, streamlining, coherence, and container for continuous integration. And that to me is gonna be the mainstream, Like five to 10 years from now, this is where I see myself going to versus going to a doctor. And it's not even like, it's not really, I'm not a good example because of like, I've been in this for a while, but it's just what I see how the yeah. most intuitively making sense totally. model to me, especially given the cost efficiencies of the group model in the community setting.
1: Yeah. No, that, that that makes complete sense to me too. And, and I, I guess I hadn't thought of these sort of emergent clubs or, groups or shared interests as as being such a potentially focal hub, but it's obviously what's already happening in a lot of places, right? Like I know yeah. the handful of groups around here that that are operating and it will be interesting to see how that sort of dynamic changes with things like decriminalization and or legalization, such as we saw in Denver and in Colorado. And Anyway, I'm just always excited to talk about what the future could look like and what the pros and the cons and how we create containers and how we use technology and what are the, the therapeutic or the conceptual frameworks like we've mentioned IFS, internal family systems quite a bit. People in the psychedelic world use that along with sort of somatic oriented sort of practices. And so I'm just so excited at what the Future will look like in two, five, 20 years' time. And so it's always nice to both speculate and also update the conceptual model of, of how this field works. What does the next five years look like for Homecoming? Yeah, it's,
0: it's a provocative question, of course, but I think that Homecoming in like five years from now, I think and I hope, uh, of course, that like, we'll earn the right to be the beating heart of the holistic practitioner ecosystem where the more uh, people use homecoming, the better they become at their craft. Uh, That's kind of Mm -hmm. my aspiration. Uh, And like what that means practically practically speaking is that with a a fairly low effort, clients of these practitioners are created are having 24 seven continuous kind of clarity and structure and guidance, like with what exactly and how exactly they can maximize their transformation, their journey and their insights. The maximum capacity and activated inner healer within in community with other clients for practitioners. It means that there's a constellation dynamic where practitioners of all these diverse modalities practice together for clients to one another, get better together, we're working on cases, creating masterminds around like how to run their practice sustainably. It also means that we, as homecoming, are able to kind of quasi unionize these practitioners so that despite being solo practitioners, they have the bargaining power to get services and coverage and protections as if they were a part of a bigger company, health benefits and tooling and training and insurance services and all that. It also means that we have built by then enough data and evidence about the efficacy of these approaches and these practitioners that we can start bridging the two hemispheres, the allopathic medicine and the holistic medicine. Yeah. And creating the full brain healthcare, the yeah. full, full CNS healthcare <laughs> by talking to peers, talking to employers, showing that this evidence of how well these practitioners work and like showing that like we are the safest way to engage with this whole ecosystem all at once. And all the guardrails, the evidence and the diversity and depth of care. And we're open to co-create and collaborate access to this ecosystem then with the allopathic infrastructure and ecosystem. Hopefully, creating a lower cost of healthcare, creating more effective preventative healthcare, and creating hopefully a more wise approach to how people think about the whole person health. Yeah. So that like fewer people even need to get sick. Yeah. And This to me it could be this point of leverage, this fulcrum, uh, at a cultural level where we can shift all those other nasty uh, manifestations uh, of our culture that come out of unbalanced psyche.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm cheering for you. Yeah, thank I'm, you. It's, it's co-creation. Yeah, I'm supportive. So, Yuri, where can if if people are interested in learning more about homecoming or signing up, what where where do you direct folks?
0: Please uh, go to homecoming.health. That's our website, homecoming.health, and you can start using homecoming immediately. We offer an Uh, unlimited access to the tooling for like for a month so you can just get started without any hurdles we also would love to speak with you personally and just come to the website and drop us a note i'll personally respond to you and i would love to build a relationship with any practitioners and learn about who you are how you practice how we can make this even more useful for you and also if you're a partner you could be a training program or a professional association or you could be somebody who's uh, uh, creating educational content and resources for practitioners or a community of practitioners, reach out, let's talk. Let's see how we can co-create and uh, make your community more valuable, make your content more visible uh, or make your training program more uh, continuous and uh, impactful. So homecoming.help. And my personal email is yuri at homecoming.health, So don't hesitate to write me an email too.
1: Beautiful. Well, Yuri, it's been great talking to you, and it's always nice to catch up and share some ideas, and I imagine our listeners will find it super helpful and useful in understanding your background and the company, and yeah, I'm just really excited for your project and seeing where it goes, so thank you.
0: Thanks, Zach. It was a a real honor to be here, and I always learn something from you, as I said, and I learned something this time, too.
1: Likewise. All right. (laughs) There it is. Thanks for listening to The Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The trip report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.